0: Good morning, First Baptist Church of Gray Gables. Hope you're having a, a marvelous week. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in to our online services. Uh, know that we're praying for you, and um, please reach out if you have any requests or any ways we can minister uh, to you this week. We love you, and we miss uh, being able to see your faces. Uh, we are back in our march through First Thessalonians uh, this morning. We are going to read verses 1 through 5 and, and likely cover at least to verse Uh, for this morning. And so hopefully you got your Bibles out and you'll read with me 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 1 through 5. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all making mention of you In our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, And in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, uh, Lord, we thank you for your holy and inspired scriptures. We thank you that in it and by it that you strengthen us, your people, And you strengthen our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you prompt us to a labor of love and you strengthen us in our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray this morning that you would grant us much grace as we consider this passage, that our our ears might be able to hear what the church in Thessalonica would have heard. We would be both encouraged, strengthened, and challenged to live into that gospel by which we are being saved. Father, we thank you for this word, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you remember last week, we saw that Paul starts this letter to the Thessalonians by reminding them of the gospel with these few words, grace to you and peace. That saving grace which brought the members of the church of Thessalonica out of the kingdom of darkness and placed them into the kingdom of his beloved son, uh, securing their reconciliation with God. And that grace led them to peace, which they now have with themselves and with God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Paul here in this next passage is going to now give thanks to God for that very thing. And really, the idea of this passage, the big idea for this passage, comes from the primary verb used— give thanks. You see that in verse 2. If I had to put it in a sentence, our main idea would be this. Paul here is expressing thanksgiving for the church in Thessalonica. Paul is expressing thanksgiving for the church in Thessalonica. But what's important to notice is that this thanksgiving is actually based upon three participles. And you don't necessarily see that in the English. So at this point, we got to pause and give just a really quick grammar lesson as uh, exhilarating and actually, let's be honest, as unappealing as that may sound. I promise you it'll help if we pause and do this. Uh, What we actually have in the text is in this passage is one verb, give thanks. That's the main verb. Thanks is being given and hanging off of it are these three participles you see them in their text i want you to watch this uh, one is making mention of you in our prayers mentioning really in the greek making mention that's one participle two would be remembering without ceasing your work of faith labor of love and patience of hope in the lord Jesus Christ. So three participles making mention or mentioning, remembering, and then three would be knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. And so really, those three are uh, are what we have. These three participles that modify the primary verb being used here. We give thanks to God for all the saints, being the big idea of the passage, but what we'll see is if we pay attention to the grammar, is that there is a context in which Paul gives thanks. There is an occasion uh, by which Paul gives thanks that's being described or explained to us. And so I want to look at each one of these participles in turn to sort of make our outline. Uh, The first is the manner of thanksgiving. I want to look at the manner of Paul giving thanks to the saints of Thessalonica, the manner of thanksgiving that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy give to God. He says, always in prayer, making mention or making remembrance. Now, Paul does this as he opens a letter. This is not the first time he gives thanks or, or mentions this phrase even. He gives thanks to the Lord and he says a similar thing. In fact, the same Greek phrase can be found in Ephesians 1 verse 16 where he says, Do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. It's the same phrase translated here as making mention of you in our prayers. Likewise, in Romans chapter 1 verses 8 and 9. Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, uh, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. That's the same phrase. Uh, This phrase is often used as a way of talking about Paul's petitioning the Lord on behalf of those whom he's writing to. So Paul and those who he co-labors with, they gather together and they pray on behalf of the church in Thessalonica. And we notice that they did this faithfully. They did so faithfully. We have two adverbs here in verse 2, or at the the beginning of verse 3. We have always and without ceasing or constantly. He says, we give thanks to God always for you all making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing. And by that, we see that they always gave thanks to God, mentioning them constantly when they prayed. They always gave thanks to God, mentioning them constantly when they prayed. Now, there can be a temptation to interpret this without ceasing in a wrong way, right? Uh, this doesn't mean they prayed with every breath. We often of think, uh, we think of praying without ceasing or unceasingly. That means we pray without stopping. Uh, they're lifting up prayer, but instead this really, this really connotes the idea of praying regularly consistently diligently with perseverance without stopping in that way it's how jesus taught them to pray in luke 18:1, he says that men always ought to pray and not lose heart this is the t- type of praying that paul sylvanus and timothy do on behalf of the church in thessalonica always consistently diligently and constantly They didn't simply pray once a week because they had a visitor so they remembered that Wednesday to lift them up in prayer and then the next week all was forgotten. No. But each and every time they prayed, they prayed for their brothers and sisters in Thessalonica. Daily. Daily. When Paul got up and hit his knees uh, to honor the Lord in prayer and bring before him thanksgiving in the harvest that he had seen in his life and ministry, the faces and the names of people in Thessalonica came to his mind and heart. I also want you to note that this is is no mere formality here. This is no mere formality. This isn't just... Uh, part of what Paul learned at a letter writing convention that Paul is to say that he gave thanks on those uh, uh, to God on behalf of the Thessalonicans, Thessalonians. Paul is expressing a sincere love for the brothers and sisters in Christ in Thessalonica. Paul is convinced. That God the Father has the power to sustain him by his grace and so he is compelled to regularly pray for them. Paul is actually convinced that if he doesn't pray for them, that it matters uh, he, he prays for them always, constantly mentioning them in his prayers because he's convinced that it is by the Lord's grace alone that these new believers in Thessalonica will continue in the faith and persevere under the persecution that they have faced even ex- ever since Paul left. So he intercedes regularly here, compelled by his love not only for God but for them. And so the application there for us is simple. we got to really ask ourselves this, right? Do we love one another like this? Are we convinced that the Lord actually hears our prayers? That my brothers and sisters in Christ are actually strengthened for their daily struggles because of my prayers for them? Uh, Do I believe that God is worthy of the thanksgiving that I offer him when I pray for each and every one of you? Honestly, I mean, let's think about it. Do we believe even just you sitting here, listening to the dividing of the word, uh, lifting up songs of thanksgiving even in your home, praying to the Lord, hearing the scriptures read, gathering together around your televisions or your computers every Sunday as if you had nothing better to do with your time, that this in its own is nothing short of a miracle of God's grace in your life? The fact that you even have a desire to listen to the word of God, that that in itself is a miracle of grace. And, and if we really believe that, then why do we not hit our knees daily to give him thanks for that? Listen, this is one part exhortation, one part Confession, okay? I do not daily, as I should, with a heart overflowing with thanksgiving, pray for the salvation or, or, or thank God for the salvation of the people here at First Baptist Church of Grey Gables. I, I don't. I, I have my prayer list and I pray for each and every one of you, but often, if I'm being honest, I just kind of pray for your needs. And look, there's nothing wrong with that. I, we should pray uh, faithfully pray. For the felt needs of God's people, the needs that you've expressed. But how much more faithful should we all be in giving thanks to the God who has made it able for me to pray for you along those lines at all? How much should I give thanks that I can actually count you as one in Christ, as a brother and sister, that I can celebrate that? Listen, if the angels celebrate with glory when one sinner comes to repentance, how much more should we daily celebrate that we have a church full of repentant sinners? I mean, when's the last time you stopped just to thank God for your salvation, And for the salvation of those around you. I want us to be faithful in this. I want us to be faithful to give thanks to the Lord for what he has already done. And so this is the manner in which Paul gives thanks. He's constantly bringing up the church of the Thessalonians in his prayers. Making mention of them always. Giving thanks to the Lord for their salvation. Giving thanks that they are saints. Saints. But I want us to continue, because after Paul explains this manner of his giving thanks, that is, in and through prayer on a regular, consistent basis in persistence, he then moves on to the immediate reason for his giving thanks. There is an immediate reason why Paul is giving thanks here, and that's what he mentions in verse 3. Immediate reason for Paul giving thanks. He says in verse 3, remembering, that's that second participle, without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. That's what he says. The memory of their work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. It caused Paul to give thanks to the Lord as he mentioned them in his prayers. One commentator calls this the trinity of Christian values, faith, love, and hope. These three are often always put together when teaching about the ideal Christian character. These three virtues are the highest virtues in the Christian life. But I want you to remember the context in which Paul is now speaking this. Remember, Paul had come to Thessalonica. He proclaimed the gospel for three Sabbaths in the synagogue, as was his custom. And eventually, the people became contentious, and he stopped meeting in the synagogue. But he continued to proclaim the gospel in that city, and many were converted. But it wasn't long before riots were ensued by jealous Jewish leaders. So Paul and Silas were driven out of Thessalonica, and it really probably wasn't even any longer than Two months, but probably around six weeks, uh, a short period of time that Paul had with this young startup fledging church. And so Paul's greatly concerned after he leaves. He's wondering okay, uh, look, we proclaimed the gospel, we saw people come to faith and repent of their sins, but is it real? Is it lasting? Is there any substance to it? And so what he does, he's greatly concerned. In fact, he's so concerned that he sends Timothy eventually there to find out what's left of the church. Is it still standing? Was it real? Has the grace of God sustained them? Well, Timothy brings back a report, and we read about it in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, verses 6 through 8. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you, therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord." So Paul is is getting this report. Timothy comes back and he says their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, it's real. And so Paul writes these words encouraging them. He writes to them encouraging them that we're remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. I want to point out, by the way, that His thanksgiving, notice this, his thanksgiving is not for their faith, love, and hope. That's the modifier. His thanksgiving is actually for their work, their labor, and their patience. Listen, Paul's not saying, listen, church, we're so thankful that you say you love the brethren, that you say that your hope really is in Jesus and him coming back one day. He's thanking them for those actual actions, their lives reflecting the truth of these virtues that Paul's giving thanks for. That's what he's giving thanks for because it's the only way he knows their conversion is real. How else would he know that they have faith if that faith does not work itself out? Uh, how would they know that they have love for one another if it's not through the labor, the self-sacrificing as it must be among one another? Uh, how can he know that they are patient in their hope unless they are actually standing against the persecution they're experiencing from those outside the church? See, look at, look at this. It's through their actions that Paul sees that their conversion was real. And it is for those very actions that he's giving thanks to the Lord. And so I want to consider each one of those actions briefly in turn. Let's start with that work produced by faith. Work produced by faith. They gave thanks to God because of the Thessalonians' conduct, their actions. And often Paul contrasts works in faith, doesn't he? We see that in the scriptures. Uh, Paul loves to contrast these two because the object of faith is the Lord Jesus Christ. But their faith was given expression in and through their work. Paul states elsewhere unequivocally that salvation is through faith alone and not works. It's what he says in Galatians chapter 5 verse 6, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith. But he mentions something about that faith, faith working through love. Faith working itself out through love. That's what counts. That's what matters is it salvation is 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 working out your uh, working out just on its own is that salvation no but Martin Luther said it very well he said we are saved by faith alone but it's not a faith that stays alone so Paul will pray in Second Thessalonians 1, 11 through 12. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of his calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness in the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what Paul desires to see in the life of these believers. Not simply just some mental ascension to the truth. Not some profession of faith 10 to 15 years ago. Not some prayer prayed, but a life changed. A life where you can say, that person belongs to Christ. And you can tell by the way they live. That's why Paul gives thanks. It's because of the the work produced by faith. Let's move on to the next one. We also see here mentioned a labor prompted by love. Labor prompted by love. In the same way as a, as a work produced by faith, the love here is not some warm sentiment. Uh, their love prompted labor for the saints, God himself had taught this, according to Paul, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. How is that so? Well, we know this. God had demonstrated what love looked like by sending his son, Jesus Christ. That's the quintessential picture of love. At the cross, we see love displayed. We see love in its purest form. It's one person laying down his life for another. That's the labor of love, self-sacrifice. So how does that flesh out today in our church? Well, it's, it's me being more concerned about my brother than myself. It's me having a greater regard for the people who I'm in fellowship with then myself, that's the labor of love demonstrated by the believers in Thessalonica. A Green, a commentator on 1 Thessalonians, write this, Far from being simply an emotion, love sought the best for the other and labored for the other's benefit. Do we do that? Do we seek the best for the other and labor for the other's benefit? That is true sacrificial labor prompted by love. Now the third um, modifier we see here, the third thing Paul is giving thanks for, an immediate thanks for, is their patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Their patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Really, this is standing fast in face of afflictions and temptations. This is what this is referring to. And I know that we don't necessarily um, experience the same level as persecution. Uh, we may think that that's coming soon. But we do live in a time when we will experience, if not affliction directly, the temptation to compromise the convictions that we hold because of the world around us. And friends, that is a pressing conviction in our day, isn't it? To lose our convictions, to compromise them, because the culture is calling us to do so. The question I have for us is, do we possess a patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ? A patience that will help us stand firm as we wait for him, as we long for his return. As Green says, uh, the hope they held was not some vague expectation about a better future, but rather solid confidence rooted in the expectation of Christ coming. This theme runs all the way through 1 Thessalonians. Christ is going to return the one who protects you from the wrath to come will return is your hope patient in that if it is in anything less than then your knees will grow weak and you will grow weary and i feel like that's exactly what we're experiencing in this day and age When we're tempted to put our hope in a political party or this world as it is right now, just being made right, friends, you will grow weary. But our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in the new heavens and new earth upon Christ's return that he has promised us in victory. And friends, in that hope, we must remain patient. Paul's not simply stating a fact here. There's a purpose behind him writing this to them. And I think the purpose is really twofold. First and foremost, the purpose is to encourage the saints. The purpose is to encourage the saints. They received this letter in the midst of their persecution and trials. And it is deeply encouraging to them. Imagine if these words were written directly to us at First Baptist Church of Greg Gables. Just imagine that. Try your best. How encouraging would it be to receive this letter from the Apostle Paul? In fact, I pray I'm not wrong in saying this. I really don't believe that I am. But we should be deeply encouraged by this. We're not the church in Thessalonica, no. But I believe we too are a church under pressure in a lot of ways. And we receive this word from the Apostle Paul. I can testify to your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. I can testify... That by God's grace, you brothers and sisters are standing fast in your faith. You have proved your conversion. You have labored in love for one another, for myself, for my family. You've been patient and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what Paul wrote here, no doubt, was not only supposed to encourage them, it was also supposed to challenge them. Paul was not saying, hey, you guys have arrived. You're glorified. Congratulations. Praise God for your perfect work of faith, your perfect labor of love, your perfect patience and hope. Paul wants this to be encouraging, yes, but in the same way Paul is saying you've done a really good job up to this point with the work that you are doing in whatever area you labor. It's very encouraging, but it should also provoke you to work even harder This is the same thing Paul actually goes on to say explicitly later in the letter. In chapter 5, verse 23, he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. So Paul thanks God for the work of love. Uh, work of faith, labor and love, excuse me, and patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he urges them to do this more and more. Well, that's the immediate reason that Paul gives thanks. And if that's the immediate reason, now we've got to look at the ultimate reason of Paul giving thanks. The ultimate reason. This is in the last part of our passage. It's in verse 4. Knowing Beloved brethren, your election by God. For, uh, verse five, let's read verse five as well. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. In other words, Paul is saying, we give thanks to God always for you in prayer. We've seen your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the ultimate grounds for our thanksgiving is that God Himself has called you out of the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of his son. He had what the scriptures call elected them. This is the ultimate grounds for his thanksgiving. It's God's election. Now, that word, it often stirs up a little bit of controversy or worry in our hearts. And so I want to be careful here. I want to be sensitive to the fact that, that so many find this teaching difficult, including myself. Uh, many, many struggle with this doctrine because some of us feel like the teaching undermines human responsibility or the freedom of man's will. And because of their struggle with this teaching, many evangelicals actually deny that this verse asserts that the primary role uh, in salvation depends on God and not human choice. So for example, one commentary on this verse says this. It says, if we choose to be in Christ, we have been chosen by God. Our choice makes us elect. Well, that's one way of interpreting this passage. And listen, I really want to be sensitive here to the struggle because some not only struggle with this teaching, some actually find this teaching and this doctrine repulsive and offensive. I was talking with a friend, I, I remember, who, who was uh, struggling with the teaching of election, and he used the analogy of a hospital. He says, the teaching of, an, uh, of election, is it kind of reminds me of, of a hospital full of people with their legs cut off. They've been put in hospital beds, and the hospital itself is burning. And it's like God walks into the hospital giving some people legs and not others while the hospital burns all around them. Well, Friends, if if that's how you conceive the doctrine of election, then I could understand why you would be repulsed by it. That's a repulsive picture, certainly. But what I want to do with the rest of our time here is is I, I want you to allow me to make a few brief comments, and listen, not in an attempt to convert or change anyone's opinion, but hopefully at least to put this idea in the right perspective. So so five observations on the doctrine of election. First, the idea of election is clearly taught in Scripture. This This is clearly Bible teaching. You can't pretend that the word election doesn't exist in Scripture. We can all agree on that. It's not just here In our text, but throughout the New Testament, the very word election or God chose is used over and over again. So simply rejecting it is not an option for the Christian who wants to be under clear or biblical authority. The second observation, in our verse and elsewhere, a scripture uh, in the Bible, it seems to clearly teach that election is exclusively an act of God. Uh, in, in all of Scripture, really, it, it seems to clearly teach us that election is exclusively the act of God. Uh, for instance, in our verse, election is uh, the election Paul's referring to, it's grounds for thanksgiving to God. It's the reason he's giving thanks to God because God has chosen them. That is why he's thanking God. So if the commentator from, from our, our, that we looked at previously is correct, that it is our choice that makes us elect, then why does Paul give election as the ultimate grounds to thank God? Then not only that, but you have passages like Romans 8, 9, 11, and 16, 1 Corinthians 1, Ephesians 1, Colossians 3, 2 Timothy 2, and Titus 1, all of which seem to clearly teach that election is exclusively the act of God. On just a simple, plain reading of the text, that is what you come away with. Third, we need to have a biblical understanding of God, man, and sin before we can appreciate what the Bible teaches about election. We have to have a biblical understanding about so many other things if we want to experience and understand this difficult doctrine. Specifically, we need to understand God, man, and sin. See, God is holy, just, righteous, and good. Man is sinful, born in sin, and willingly sinning from the beginning. But an important distinction needs to be made here. Man has retained all of his natural abilities that he had before the fall. This is important. Men and women can still think, feel, and deliberate between what is right and what is wrong. We have the ability to reason, although it doesn't seem that way in our culture. These natural abilities remain intact. But what the problem is, is they're now influenced by our sinful inclinations. In other words, we have the natural ability to choose right, but we are inclined and always directed towards evil. In fact, we prefer it. It's our moral ability, not our natural ability, that has been helplessly broken. So we now use our God given capacities for evil rather than good. We're not forced to sin, we want to sin, we enjoy sin. We're not stuck in hospital beds. We climbed in willingly. That's why we're in the hospital bed. So it's not biblical to describe people as helpless, disabled people in a hospital that's burning. It's not a biblical picture of the situation. The building wouldn't be a hospital. It'd be an armory. And we'd be in there shooting out the windows at the Lord. And the only reason that the whole building has not burned down, collapsing all around us is God's common grace. We started the fire that's the way the Bible paints the picture. You can't read it from cover to cover and come away with a picture of helpless, legless people in a hospital bed. It's not a biblical picture of the situation. God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish. So fourth, far from a picture of God as an arbitrary tyrant who saves or condemns people without rhyme or reason... In the scriptures, we see something else about the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election is intimately connected to God's love. The doctrine of election is intimately connected to God's love. Listen, we may not understand it, and I don't even sure we're supposed to understand it, but let us never deny what the Bible clearly proclaims. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. The elect are the beloved of God. Even here in our own passage, love is the very grounds for God's election of his sons and daughters in Christ. Listen, we aren't meant to understand this mechanism necessarily, but but we are meant to understand that it is God's free electing love that saves us. We are meant to marvel at the beauty and the majesty of a completely Free love. The love of God is not caused, but flows from the very essence of who God is as Father, Son, and Spirit. We, the elect of God who are in Christ Jesus, have been made the special objects of God's redeeming love. This is not an idea to dissect and try to understand every bit and part, but it's an idea to celebrate. God loves us. You are loved by the creator of a hundred billion galaxies full of a hundred billion stars. You, who once attempted to rob God of his glory, are now the object of his affections. Praise the Lord. That leads us to my final point. Observation here on the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election, this teaching, was not meant to spark theological debates. Election was not meant to spark theological debates. As you find here in this passage, this is one of the interesting things about this. Paul doesn't attempt to explain it because he just assumes his audience understands. There's no caveats or qualifiers here. He can just say, God has chosen you. And through his proclamation of the gospel and the time he's already spent with them, he knows they understand that. It's clear Uh, He wrote this to a church, by the way, a young church under pressure, remember, to encourage and challenge them. And so this is a reminder that despite the opposition and persecution they've experienced, their salvation and destiny does not ultimately depend on their imperfect faithfulness and uncertain strength, but on the living and true God who has chosen them. If you have been a Christian for more than a day, you should be saying amen to that. I mean, think about it. How many people do you know who are coming to the faith and they just immediately experience a burning passion for the Lord and you think there's a picture of real Christianity? But it fades. It burns out. It's waxing and waning. And let's be honest, friends, oftentimes so is our walk. But thanks be to God that our salvation is not grounded in that but it's grounded in his electing love. Friends, isn't this what makes the gospel good news? It's no longer dependent upon us. No part of it from beginning to end. If it were dependent upon me in any part, then it just became something less than really good news. You see, my father has planned it, my Lord Jesus has accomplished it, and the Holy Spirit will apply it to the end until it's consummated. So friends, be encouraged. It does not depend on you. Thanks be to God. And really to boil this all down as simply as we possibly can, as we've said many times from this pulpit, the fact of the matter is if you're saved, Christian, it is fully, completely because of God in all ways. It's his. Salvation is the Lord's. It's his work. It's not yours. So if you're saved, it's because of God. But we we also have to ask the question, well then, is that the case with lost folks? No, friends. If you're lost, it's your fault. It's your responsibility. Because at the end of the day, you are the one who has continually rejected the God of the universe. You're the one who willingly sins against him and rebels against him. And so remember that. Friends, I don't want this to be an opportunity for division for us. Um, this is a difficult doctrine and a doctrine that I've been hesitant to really talk about because I, I don't know all the, the mechanisms of it and, and necessarily how it all works. But these are the things I know because these are the things that scriptures teach us. And so I want this to be an opportunity for us to rally together as a church, not let the enemy have any division. Remember, this is not supposed to be divisive. This was supposed to be an encouraging thing to be celebrated. So if there's any questions that you have or um, concerns you might have, I hope you know you can come to your pastor. (laughs) And I promise you at the end of the day, I'm going to love you and serve you. That's what it means to be part of a family. Friends, as we've seen this morning, Paul is giving thanks to God for this church. And I can't help but to think, um, in my life and in my prayer this week, in the midst of all that's going on around us, even not being able to have all of you here, how thankful I am to God for First Baptist Church of Greg Gables Would you join me in continually this week praising God and thanking God For what he's doing even now. I know this is often a time where we can be so discouraged about what's going on in the world around us. But friends, God still has his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let's thank him for that. And celebrate him always. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And that every part of it speaks to us directly where we are. We thank you. That your word is profitable, Lord, it's encouraging, it's correcting, it's reproofing, Lord, it's making us complete. We thank you that indeed it is that word which upon hearing and faith brought us to salvation. It's that word by your grace that sustains us. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would help us be not only hearers of your word, but also doers of your word. Father, that you would help us abound in love, that you would help us to be steadfast in hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray all of this in the sweet and precious name of Jesus. In his holy name, amen. Amen. Thank you, church. As always, if the Lord stir your heart in any way, um, respond in repentance of sin or confession of sin, please reach out to us. And maybe this morning you were listening to this and, and you know that you've um, not shown any of those Christian virtues, that your your faith is just not simply a saving faith, it's a proclamation of faith only. Um, we would love the opportunity to share Christ with you this week. So if the Lord has convicted your heart, please, I'm begging you, reach out, hear the gospel of Christ, and be saved. We love you, church. We hope to all see you soon, praying for you daily. Um, have a wonderful day. God bless.